for the 99.9% of people, I do believe we're all born really compassionate. And I think it's society that like bangs the compassion out of us and tells us to act in the normal way. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the PBN Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Lockie. On this week's episode, we have the brilliant and talented Dara Kristen Hayes. Dara is also known as DJ Tiger Lily. With her vibrant personality and style, she has become a hero in her hometown of Sydney and one of the hottest commodities in the Australian dance music scene. Recognition of her talent from industry leaders has led to residencies at some of the most renowned events and venues in the country, including Pasha, the World Bar and Soho in Sydney, and the Red Square in Adelaide, to name a few. She has also graced the stages of Australia's major festivals, including Stereosonic and the Future Music Festival. On stage, DJ Tiger Lily's love for music transcends into captivating performances, bringing about an exciting fusion of electro and techno with some popular vocals and a hit or two thrown into the mix. Dara is a force for good in what is often seen as quite a male-dominated world of DJs, clubs and music. Her passion for animals, health, and the environment shines through in absolutely everything she does. I hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Please don't forget to comment, share, and review this podcast. It really helps get the message out there. Let's get to the episode. Thanks for having me. I am so excited to chat and to be here. I love podcasts and it's so nice chatting to like-minded people. It really is. Um, I've been following you for a while and uh, been sort of watching you from afar all the way over here in England and wondering when we're going to get to chat and it's finally happening and I'm really excited. Yeah, me too. Same goes for you, I suppose. Um, and yeah, thanks so much for having me on. I'm yeah, I'm really, really blessed and excited. So uh, before we talk about everything that you're doing with your life, now we always like to go back in time and hear our guests vegan story so Mm. tell us your vegan journey and how did you discover the lifestyle so we're gonna go way back to when I was like four years old for everyone listening don't get shocked I wasn't vegan at four (laughs) (laughs) I have only been vegan for about four years now and I'm 27 um so when I was four years old I have this really vivid memory of being at Christmas dinner my family celebrates like the British style Christmas because my dad is from England and so we do Christmas Eve with you know pork and turkey and chicken and all the other bits and pieces and I just have this really vivid memory of not wanting to eat the meat on my plate so what I did was I put it in my mouth and like pretended to chew it and then I spit it into my napkin and threw it under my chair and (laughs) I don't know what I was Yeah, I don't know what I was thinking, but I just remember thinking I didn't want to eat it. Anyway, of course, I got in so much trouble from my mum after we um, finished the dinner because she found a pile of like half-chewed meat all on the floor, which is absolutely disgusting. (laughs) And I have these um, clear memories around that period of time and probably up until the age of being about 10. I really wanted to go vegetarian and I think I wanted to do it for two reasons. First of all, because I liked animals, but I also thought it was like the cool thing to do. It was something that if you were a kind, cool person, you would do it. I'm presuming that I had older people or older women in my life who I was looking up to at that point in time, but I actually can't remember. Anyway, Uh, My mum said, no, you can't be vegetarian. You can be vegetarian when you um, are old enough to cook your own food and then you can make that decision for yourself. Fair enough. I get it. She had, you know, three young kids and was working full time, as was my dad. And then when I came of age, I 
just was totally asleep and totally disconnected. And I actually used to like pay out my friends who were vegetarian or vegan, which just like blows my mind. I was a really different person. Even what like does pay out mean? Ago. Is that an, is that an Australian phrase? Oh yeah, it means like you know give them give them shit. You know, okay. I say. <laughs> Oh, you know, you can just just have a an egg on your avocado toast. Like it's not going to kill you, you know. Just giving them a really hard time. <laughs> oh, anyway, I've apologized to all those friends now, and they accepted the apology. <laughs> um, but yeah, so then, fast forward to being maybe twenty three. And I was traveling a lot for work. I was probably overseas like eight months of the year traveling. And when I mean overseas, I mean like we were doing four to five different cities or even countries if we were in Europe a week. So it was a lot of moving around, like a lot of jet lag, a lot of partying. You can imagine what the typical like DJ tour life would be like. That's what it was like at that point in time. And of course, as a result, my sensitive, awesome body got pretty sick. And I came home for Christmas and New Year's Eve. And um, I remember having this really beautiful, profound conversation with my cousin on New Year's Eve. And she had been vegan for quite a few years. And she was just absolutely glowing, like from a physical perspective, but also like emotionally and spiritually. And I think I was in a really desperate sad spot to make a change because I was Mm. unwell. I was actually hadn't been diagnosed at that point, but I had um, like a, I suppose, a version of Crohn's disease, which is like um, for anyone listening, it's like an inflammatory chronic disorder that happens in your intestine and or gut area. Um, And so I had all these shitty symptoms literally with that it was affecting a lot of my life you know my emotions my relationships my work and I was really looking for a way to get better so that new year's I made a decision to slowly transition myself over to being vegan Um, and it was purely at that point just because I wanted to get healthy and I could see um, you know the physical results in my cousin and it just so happened at that time my younger sister read the china study and was really interested in going plant-based as well and so we kind of embarked on that together um and probably like four months into that year was when i fully um transitioned to a complete vegan diet and absolutely haven't looked back and i still like you know thank my cousin every day I wake up for just being like, wow, thank you for opening my eyes so much to the best life ever. And when people ask me about um, veganism and, uh, you know, plant-based living and even vegetarianism, if they're on that path, um, I just say it's the best thing I've ever done for myself. And honestly, it's changed everything. It's changed my physical self. It's changed the way I look. It's changed the way I move. It's changed the way I perform. But it's also changed my emotions. It's changed my respect for my body and for the world. And it's made me a conscious person in regards to my everyday actions, you know, three times a day, I have an option to vote with my dollar and with my behavior and kind of show the world that, you know, I care about animals and that I think animal rights are a really big priority. Hey, I'm Tiger Lily, but I'd prefer if you call me Dara. Welcome to my vegan life. (laughs) 
<laughs> you obviously live in Australia, um, and Australia yes. is very well known for its very meat-heavy culture. Every, you know, um, yeah. what do you call you? You call them barbies, or we call them barbecues in England and in South Africa, well, yeah. Zimbabwe, where I'm from. I, I'm from Africa. We call them a braai, mm-hmm. <laughs> so you mm-hmm. braai our food. Mm-hmm. And the meat culture yeah. is is huge in in our respective countries, and it's you know, especially in South Africa, and I know it's the same in Australia. People sort of equate eating meat to breathing air. <laughs> you know, they they feel like they they couldn't possibly survive without uh, eating meat that you know so talk talk us through growing growing up in this culture and and what it was like and and also how people have reacted to you now uh you know your family and friends now that you don't eat meat yeah i think that's a great question on a side note i just want to quickly say i went to africa a couple years ago and i was maybe 19 or 20 and the only options were meat or these like rye husks. We were on like oh, wow. a safari for three weeks. And so I was like, fuck eating this meat. I don't know what this is or where this came from. I kid you not, I lost like six kilos because all I was eating was like rye husk bread things. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was intense. Like I've never seen so much meat before. Pretty crazy. <laughs> so yeah, growing up in Australia, um, we have a very strong identity to eating animal products. I think we have a lot of, you know, long-standing relationships with farming of beef and of wool and of dairy, and so it's really, really unfortunately embedded into the culture. And this wasn't something that I really noticed growing up. Um, Growing up, I just expected that it was healthy to have meat and vegetables like for dinner. And, you know, a healthy option would be like a ham and cheese salad sandwich for lunch. And for breakfast, it'd be like yogurt or milk. Oh my goodness. I just cringe thinking about all the stuff that I consumed when I was younger. But as the marketing people have done all over the world, they've done an especially wonderful job here in Australia, making it non-Australian in the eyes of a lot of people to reject animal product. It's very unfortunate that our country has identified so closely with using animals for industry and for financial gain. When I was growing up here, it wasn't something that I even thought about because there was meat and dairy product and wool and leather and everything just in our everyday life. And I think we had like one vegan family friend at that point in time. And mum always used to have like a pink fit when they came over because she wouldn't know what to cook. (laughs) I love that, a pink Um, fit. That's brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) And now my mum is the best vegan cook. She's awesome. So, But, yeah, it's something that I've definitely noticed, um, especially from a masculine perspective now. Um, I've noticed that Australian men in particular are really – reliant and in this like long deep emotionally connected complicated relationship with animal product and it's almost as if their masculinity is um related to how much meat that they can consume especially in regards to things like the fitness industry and things like that obviously being kind of not in the fitness industry but you know I'm health conscious and I train at like a CrossFit gym I've noticed that the guys there it's all about you know meat and steak and that's about it you know and so it's 
It's quite complicated and I'm really looking forward to seeing some awesome Australian male role models stepping up and saying, hey, look at me, I'm vegan or even I'm so open-minded, you know, I'm vegetarian or I'm plant-based 80% of the time and look at me, I'm still really masculine. It is happening slowly and there are some like really cool guys on social media who are standing up and, you know, making a good name for themselves, but it's just going to take a little bit more time for it to be, especially in the um, for the boys, for it to be um, accepted and for it not to be seen as feminine and mm. soft, I it, suppose. It's crazy, isn't it? I mean, I, I think I don't understand why men think, you know, that, I mean, it's clearly a lot of men's masculinity is so fragile, you know, that the thought of mm. just quitting meat is it just fills them with anger and resentment, doesn't it? And like, I don't really understand how consuming vegetables is an affront to their manhood. I mean, really. <laughs> I know it's crazy isn't it and when you like look at what the studies say especially in regards to things like testosterone levels libido all these things all the studies are saying that the guys who are on a primarily plant-based diet are the ones that are you know having better results for all these things so from a scientific masculine perspective the best thing for them to do is consume plants you know as opposed to animal product it's quite confusing but once again I think it goes back to like we come from convicts and farmers and like battlers and so like we've always been like survival culture yeah Yeah, rounding up the cows like it's just so ingrained in like our culture and it's portrayed so slyly in the media all the time it kills me I get so frustrated and so it's just like all these subtle messages all the time that you're being bombarded with so I'm not surprised that it's still this way hey everyone so we're in the car and we are heading from Noosa on the way to a place called calf rescue we have an adopted little baby that we're about to go and visit and his name is Elliot and I'm so excited to meet him. Anyway, the guys at Calf Rescue are doing amazing, amazing work. They are going and rescuing a lot of these baby boys from the dairy milk industry up here in Queensland and giving them a forever home where they're gonna be safe and loved and happy. I'm just trying to plan how I'm gonna take Elliot home because I don't think you can put a cow on a plane. So <laughs> that's gonna be a bit of a problem, but uh, we'll see what we can do. <laughs> Did you see the Channel 7 uh, documentary that talked about the the vegans invading the farms? Oh my gosh, kill me. Yes. <laughs> what was really interesting is that the man who owns Channel 7 is a giant rancher. He's got farms. I know. I know. Of course. And it's like this with like all the mainstream media people. They hate publicizing anything to do with veganism because often they're financially involved with farms or the dairy or often the horse racing or the gambling or all of those things that are kind of intertwined with, you know, using animals as products. There's a, a really, actually quite a great show um, that we have here called The Project. And what they do is they get um, all the recent like news items for the day and they kind of go over them. And I would say I agree with them 98% of the time. They're really open-minded. Um, they're really inclusive. 
they are great journalists. And then the ABC did a report on horse racing in Australia and really, um, I suppose, showed how bad it was. I'm not sure if you guys saw it over there, but there was some pretty shocking footage that came out and some pretty shocking stats as to how many professional racehorses are slaughtered in Australia every year. It's crazy. Um, yeah. Anyway, so their project, this um, TV show that we watch, it did a great report on that and I was like, amazing, brilliant, like we're standing up for animal rights, we're saying no, we don't accept it. And then I kid you not, the next week was the Melbourne Cup, which is like the biggest horse race, and they are of course, fucking promoting the Melbourne Cup. And I was like, guys, come on, like – Literally four days ago, we were talking about how bad this industry is and it's almost as if everyone has forgotten and we're back to just being asleep. So it's pretty disappointing. It is disappointing. And I think these industries are so powerful and they have so much money. I, I don't know what it's like in Australia, but certainly here in the UK and the US, there's a lot of powerful lobby lobbyists and groups that lobby the government to force things. I know in Australia at the moment, there's a lot of talk around labeling of vegan uh, foods. Um, so they're trying mm-hmm. to stop uh, producers like Sunfed, for example, which is a, it's, New Ze- it's from New Zealand, I think, Sunfed. It's a chicken replacement, but it's coming to Australia and the Australian government are trying to force it from using the word chicken um have you experienced much of that have you seen much of that is it what's it like with almond milk and soy milk do you guys also have bans in place from using those words not yet um all our milks are still almond milk coconut milk soy milk i don't know if any of the like bans necessarily have come through like I'm not I'm not a hundred percent sure on that, but I do notice that a lot of the brands that are coming out now, they're getting creative with the words that they're using or they're saying um they're like they're calling themselves out being vegan, but like a, a brand that we have is called Alternative Meat. So it's called Alt Meat, and they make all these like fun names for their like vegan alternative okay. products. <laughs> um so I had like a burger today and it was called the Megan, I think it was. <laughs> okay. I don't, so like the meat vegan, you know right. what I mean? Yeah. I was trying to get creative to obviously go around those rules. But um, I, there is an interesting um, comment that I want to make about an industry and in regards to lobbyists and or people in power. So we had the Greyhound Racing be shut down maybe like two years ago. And that was a massive win because like Obviously, there's a lot of really bad abuse of animals in the greyhound racing industry. It was crazy that the government was going to stop it. And so everyone was so happy. And then all of a sudden, there's a lot of really powerful people or maybe really bad people as well who um, want it to be still going. And now it's back on again, which is really sad because like obviously, yeah, I don't even need to state why it's bad. Um, Yeah. Yeah, it's just... It's incredible. I mean, this is the thing with money. When they, when you have enough money in this world, you can really overturn anything. You know, a lot of us sit sit comfortably in our, you know, I think most of us are liberal, left leaning bubbles, and you know, we think you think everyone's you know kind and caring and loving, but there's a lot of quite evil people out there. And we were talking on last week with uh, Joshua Kutcher, who's a a, a vegan uh, fashion designer and um, lecturer, and he was saying that talking about sort of evil and being mean that a lot of people like it because it makes them feel powerful. You know, a lot of us, you know, a lot of us sort of kind of folk, we don't really understand it, but when you really break it down, you know, this kind of power is an opiate to people. And I think it's a really hard to sort of, 
fight against it because it is such a powerful force in our world, really. The older I become, the more I become so dismayed with people because obviously I feel like we're the same. We're probably you know, originally quite kind-hearted and although I can be a bitch for sure, I (laughs) genuinely like want the best for everyone and you just presume that everyone is going to be the same as you. But yeah, the older I get, the more I realize that people are I always say this to my friends and they roll their eyes, but like people are the cancers of the world. Like really, we don't, we do some good, but we do a lot of shit as well at the same Mm. time, which is quite unfortunate. It's true. I I do believe in, and as you said, it is unfortunate to say, but I do believe that humans have become a bit of a parasite on earth because, you know, like a parasite, a parasite destroys, it destroys the environment it lives in. It destroys the host that it's a, that it's occupying. A parasite doesn't give back to the the organism that it's a part of. It doesn't give back to the environment that it, that it's a part of. It doesn't live in equilibrium and all it does is kill and consume and destroy. You know, I, I wanted to actually, it's a bit depressing, but I wanted to set up a campaign and into national campaign to have homo sapiens sapiens you know our species reclassified as a invasive parasitic species mm-hmm. i am all for that because it is so true like everything that you just said right then of like the definition of a parasite and like how it works is exactly what a large majority of the population do that are humans it's yeah, it's, it's crazy it, yeah it really is it, bog- it blows my mind but what's different about us compared to a sort of conventional parasite is that we do have the potential to be incredible creators and not destroyers. Like we can transform deserts into forests. We can bring water where there was no water. We can clean the ocean. We can create and be wonderful creatures. And that's the thing. Like we are capable of so much more. And that's what I find so frustrating about our species and the world that we live in today is that I look out and I see all these incredible creative people doing so much good and it and it just feels like so much of humanity is just fast asleep, kind of sleepwalking into oblivion. And I often use this um, analogy of a bus and the bus is like the earth and at the back are all the ethical vegans screaming and shouting, slow down, stop the bus. The rest of humanity is at the front of the bus partying and screaming and eating loads of meat and buying lots of fast fashion and, and throwing things out the window and like being just careless and couldn't care about what's going on. Now the bus is flying along at a hundred miles an hour and heading for a cliff. And the ethical vegans at the back are screaming and some environmentalists are screaming, stop the bus, stop the bus. And no one's listening to us. (laughs) Yeah. A hundred percent. Oh my God. That is the best analogy. I feel like that. And sometimes you feel like your voice is heard, but 99% of the time you feel like you're just like yelling in like a soundproof box because (laughs) there are so many people that are still really asleep. And as you said before, like it is changing. And the craziest thing is that like, I fully believe that humans can be miraculous when we put our hearts and like our brains together and do really amazing things. Like, yeah, we can clean oceans, we can create forests in deserts, we can save species, we can heal our selves literally just with the power of our mind. Like there's so many incredible things that we can do, but you have to be using your mind and your body and your energy in the right way. And, yeah, and your that heart. takes work and it takes compassion. Yeah, yeah. And your heart too. So speaking about compassion, do you think human beings are innately born with compassion or do you think we have to learn it? I think that we are born with compassion and then I think we unlearn compassion. It's like that baby and the rabbit 
thing that everyone throws around all the time. Like you put a baby with a rabbit, it's not going to eat it. It's going to play with it. And I think when we're born, we are inherently compassionate um, as children for the most part. I'm talking about like the 99% of the population because I do believe that there are some like evil spirits that are reincarnated as people. (laughs) Um, But yeah, look, for the 99.9% of people, I do believe we're all born really compassionate. And I think it's society that like bangs the compassion out of us and tells us to act in the normal way. A prime example is like me wanting to be vegetarian when I was younger and that, you know, not being allowed. And I'm not blaming my mom at all because she was just doing the best that she could. And she was the best mom and she still is the best mom, but it's just society you know what are some of the ways we can kind of develop our compassion do you think as just people in general yeah so like you know because obviously as you say it's banged out of us but how do we how do you feel like you other than obviously eating a plant-based diet like how how have you developed that that part of you that kind of heart center part of you Mm, I think there's lots of different ways and it depends in so some of them off the top of my head is for me like spending time with animals is a massive one because there's no talking yet you're able to communicate so many amazing thoughts and emotions and feelings and interact with them in a way that you can never interact with a human. It's pretty profound. I think also spending time with people that you don't necessarily see eye to eye with. I've recently had like a bit of a fight with one of my friends and actually only this afternoon I fully came around did a full 360 and am now seeing like his point of view in a brand new light, which I never would have been able to do unless I spent time really trying to put myself in his shoes. And I think it's important that we are compassionate with people as well. Deep down, I'm like this really angry, angry, angry vegan, but I try and be like a positive, kind one on the outside because I don't want to be angry all the time. It can be really frustrating, like dealing with friends or other people or partners or whatever it might be who aren't at all awake. And I think the best thing to do is to show them compassion and to put yourself in their shoes and remember that you probably were where they were at one point. Like, you know, most of us were eating meat for, you know, the first few years of our lives. There's a really small percentage of people that were actually vegetarian or vegan from birth. And I think that's another great way for the vegan movement to move forward is showing compassion to other humans because people are drawn to kindness and people are drawn to compassion and positivity. No one likes being told what to do. No one likes being told that they're wrong. And so for me, what I'm working on at the moment is trying to be compassionate to others, which then in turn will hopefully flip and like radiate compassion out from them to the animals. Compassion is a bit like a seed. Um, my sort of spiritual uh, background is Buddhism, is Buddhist. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Buddha often talked about the seeds of compassion. I definitely see it a bit like a seed in, in a human life. And when you water it and you nourish it, it does flourish and it does blossom. Uh, but it is a work in progress. You know, I, I had a podcast with, do you know Joey Carbstrong? Yeah. Joey and I talked about 
this, you know, and I said how reacting to other people um, who are different to us and have different opinions and beliefs, we must always come from a place of compassion. And that doesn't mean that we're going to get it right 100% of the time. You know, I've lost my temper with people in the past who, who are flippant about our lifestyle, who talk about animals like they're just objects and that their lives are meaningless. And it's not easy to, to stay kind and compassionate in the face of, you know, aggressive behavior. But I think, you know, that is, in my opinion, my experience over the years of doing this, it is the most effective and it is the way that you can open other people's hearts because we don't win people over by screaming and shouting with anger and aggression, you know, as much as you want to run around and shake people. And that goes for anything, politics, talking about the environment, animal rights, feminism, you know, like we have to connect with people on a heart to heart basis. I mean, I think some things some people do need to be shaken up by. I mean, we can talk, we'll talk a bit about sexism and feminism in a bit because I think some men definitely do need to be shaken up when it comes to their attitudes towards women but we'll, we'll get on to that yeah also i just want to add one more thing i think it's also a really great tool that i'm trying to learn and instill in my life is looking and trying to understand about how people communicate and how people best absorb information and working to their strengths so like if they're wanting to just sit there and watch a documentary cool but if they're wanting to like if they love cooking get them in on the food or if they're there for the health get them in on that i've had so many people you have no idea reach out to me in the past like two months being like oh can we sit down and talk about like your diet and I'm like yes of course and you just take it to I suppose like bring them information but try and deliver it in a way that they're gonna hear it you know some people need to be shocked or scared or screamed at and other people need to be kind of softly coerced into it <laughs> yeah i think i think most humans uh, don't like to be told what to, to do and most humans don't want to be shamed into changing some people it works with but i think a very small majority so i definitely think that it's it's a uh, carrot over stick in my opinion but regarding mm-hmm. kind of tactics like what it, what in your opinion what do you think is the biggest thing holding back the growth of the vegan movement hmm good question i think Uh, There are a couple of things. One being role models who are publicly standing up and talking about veganism and animal rights on a regular basis. There is obviously a lot more at the moment than there was, say, like two to three, four, five years ago. I love the way that Lewis Hamilton posts about veganism and the environment on his Instagram because he is an absolute idol to so many guys. And to have people like that standing up and defending the animals and um, opening their hearts publicly, I think that's really important. Um, Unfortunately, I think vegans have been given like a really shitty rep for a really long time. And it is because there's like so many angry vegans who get angry and I think that unfortunately it does the movement an injustice as opposed to helping it and then the last thing I think which has been stopping it from picking up for a while but isn't going to be stopping it anymore is just like the availability of food product that appeals to like the average person, um, you know, the average person who wants to have hamburgers and pizza and all these things. Like now the technology is here and you can have it and it tastes exactly the same. It's better for the planet. It's better for your body. It's obviously better for the animals. And I think, or I feel, and I see that it's like a tidal wave and it's just coming in so fast because every restaurant you go to now has a vegan tsunami. Yeah, it literally is a vegan tsunami. <laughs> Bring it on. <laughs> I'm on the surfboard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
But I think it's also really different in different places. I'm just speaking for Australia and I'm excited for, you know, what the next few years holds. And I'm excited that I've finally like found my voice for speaking out about things. Um, and I remember seeing this meme before I was active about animal rights and speaking out about all this kind of stuff. And it said, the one thing I wish I would have done different with my activism is I wish I would have started sooner. And I was looking at that meme being like, what the heck? And like, now I am that meme. (laughs) (laughs) It's so true. So when it comes to kind of being vegan and stuff like that, like, Obviously, we look out into the world and, you know, we, even with, you know, human suffering and, and the environmental destruction, there's so much bad things going on in the world. And there have been for, for centuries, obviously. And, you know, life is better for so many more people these days. But there is still a lot of suffering, you know, animal suffering, trillions of animals killed every year. Um, I'm sure you've seen the videos of animals suffering. Anyone who's listening, there's just so much evidence now of, of what, and how people and animals suffer. How do we and how do you remain positive and how do you avoid becoming misanthropic and angry? And I know you said you're a bit of an angry vegan, but what is your kind of, do you have like a daily practice or something that you use to to keep you positive and try and keep you centered? I have lots of different things that I do because I've come to realize in the last 12 months that life is not going to be easy. And from like a mental perspective, like I'm quite emotional and soft. And that combination with being angry and really distraught about what's going on in the world can be really toxic. So I have lots of different things that I do. I meditate. Exercise is really important for me and my mental health. I practice yoga. I take saunas, which give me time to sweat and chill out. I have a really great relationship with my family, which is awesome because I feel like I can turn to them when I need to. So one one of my sisters is vegan and the other one's vegetarian. I also have a Reiki energy healer who um, I go to when I need a big, I suppose, energy dump. So like there's so many things that I do to keep myself in check. You know what? It's not always positive. Like I have really down days where I'll just cry because like you feel so overwhelmed. Like, oh my God, I want to cry thinking about feeling like that because it's absolutely awful. And some days I do wish I could like put the blindfold back on and just go back to sleep, you know, because it is really hard on your heart. And I think that so many people listening to this will be able to appreciate that feeling of like despair. But I think if you can find out what works for you, so for me, obviously keeping my physical body feeling good and sleeping and exercising is really important. And if you can find a little crew, whether it be some, you know, you need two or three like close vegan buddies or your family that you can speak to about things. It's really important to have a safe space where you can be yourself and talk about things that are important to you and also vent about all your non-vegan friends. <laughs> Amazing. Good advice. Yeah. So uh, changing track a bit, say changing track, mm. see what I did there. Um, you have been involved in the music scene for quite some time. Um, yeah, tell us your, your music journey. Where did you get involved in music and, uh, and what inspired you to get into it? So I've been playing music for as long as I can remember. So before I even went to school, when I was like three or four years old, um, we started doing music lessons and we went to this amazing music school where we were taught like piano, percussion, how to write music, how to sight read, to sing, all of it. You know what I mean? It was like a really 
holistic music course. And as a result of that, I played different instruments um, all throughout school. You know, it was always in all the bands and the choirs and all that kind of stuff. I had so much fun and did so many cool things as a result of loving music and being a musician. I then left school and unfortunately, I went to a selective school. Well, fortunately and unfortunately. Um, so pretty much what that is in Australia, I'm sure they have them over in the UK. You have to like do an examination and a certain percentage of the people in the country get offered a spot to, you know, however many schools there are. As a result of that, I made amazing friends. I had a beautiful schooling experience, but music wasn't like a career option, you know. You were only going to be a music teacher or maybe you could be in like a symphony orchestra, or maybe you could be an admin or something like that. Mm -hmm. And none of those things appealed to me whatsoever. And so I actually went to university and started to do dentistry because I thought, you know, that was what I wanted to do. I really like teeth. So (laughs) I was like, why not? Okay. And of course, at the same time that I started to go to uni, I started to go to nightclubs. And of course, I fell in love straight away with just the whole shebang of DJing. I remember one day in particular or one evening and we're out at the club and the DJ played a shocking mix, like just so terrible. And I turned to my friends and I was like, oh my God, that was so bad. And they said, what? And they didn't even hear that the song had changed, like, you know, nothing. And I thought to myself, hmm, I can tell if the DJ's bad and they can't. Maybe I could do a better job. And turns out I could do a better job. (laughs) Um, So I um, switched my degrees. So I changed um, to a Bachelor of Media and Communications with a double major in marketing and sociology. And I started, um, I suppose, learning how to DJ. I did a competition called Your Shot. And what that is, it's an Australian created competition, which gives young kids the opportunity to learn how to DJ and perform. And then you have a big competition at the end of it where you, I suppose, DJ against other people. And I ended up coming second in Sydney for that back in 2011. And that was like my um, foot in the door of the music industry, I suppose. And people always ask, you know, what was the pivotal moment of your career? Or like, when did you know that everything was going to be up from there? And it hasn't been like that. It's just been like a long, hard slog and lots of work and lots of flights and lots of late nights and lots of music. But it's, it's been really brilliant and I'm so grateful like I have the best job and I have great employees and I've had so many amazing experiences I've been able to travel to all different amazing parts of the world and yeah it's all thanks to music and you know what I'm actually vegan because of music because if I didn't run myself into the ground touring as a DJ like I did then I probably wouldn't have needed to reach out for help and to change my lifestyle so yeah 
Amazing. Pretty crazy. Great story. So, so <laughs> that lifestyle obviously has taken you to all different parts of the world and, and you've come across and been exposed to lots of different people. The, the scene itself, and now just to tell you a bit about myself, I grew up in, in Zimbabwe and, and the music and the music culture that I grew up in was dance music. So I grew up in clubs and big festivals where it was all just dance music. And one thing that I noticed over the years and as I've become more aware of equality and privilege, it's a very male dominated world you know all the djs i used to like carl cox judge jules seb fontaine yes. uh, paul van dyke um all those yeah. all those djs who but there were very few female um artists mm. um has that mm. changed and and is it changing it has changed and it is changing which is very exciting look there's still a very high number of males in the industry compared to females. It's still very male dominated. Uh, prime example is you look at the DJ mag competition. And yeah. I think there's like eight, eight girls out of a hundred, wow. which is fucking shocking. Why is that? Really? Ah, uh, politics, <laughs> money, right. Politics, money, politics, money. Politics in what, <laughs> se- in what sense? Like what kind of politics do you mean as in the boy boys club mentality or? Yeah, a hundred percent. It's just a definite boys club industry and it's tricky because it can be really hard to break into it if you're not a party animal and you're not wanting to be in the boys club and be a part of the boys club. And I was really lucky in that, like, I suppose I was part of the boys club for a while and I did party for a while and, you know, made a lot of great relationships. And then I chose to kind of take a step back and have a slightly more healthy approach, but I'd established myself enough to continue that. Whereas it can be quite difficult for women um, in the industry. And I think we get really heavily criticized. Um, And something that we really get heavily criticized on is of course our, our, like technique about how good we are but also the way we look and it's really shocking that like all like the mainstream DJs are really conventionally attractive and that shits me off like it's not very representative of what women look like and I sit here and say this and I'm a freaking white able-bodied I'm you know really standard size like you know I tick all the boxes but it's frustrating for me because I want to see other women represented as well you know I want to see women of all shapes sizes colors ages represented um, as DJs and you know up on the stage but it's just not quite like that at the moment which is unfortunate but it is positive it's look similar to like the vegan situation, it is changing and it's a slow burn, but I can see some really positive changes. And look, even compared to when I started, I had two girls that I looked up to. And now if a girl was starting to DJ, she might have, you know, 50 to a hundred really powerful, strong female artists that she could look up to. So it's, yeah, it is exciting. And that's only in what, eight or nine years. If, you've, if there are any young uh, women listening who want to get involved in this industry, uh, what would you say to them? I always say the same thing. Um, work on your craft and just make sure you're a really good DJ because you're going to get judged on absolutely everything. And so being able to stand up on stage and absolutely rock it from a technical perspective is the absolute most rewarding thing. And it means that people won't be able to criticize you because you'll really know your craft. Mm. It's a bit like being a conductor, isn't it? You're, but your, your orchestra are the machines that you stand in front of. <laughs> 
Yeah, and also the crowd too. The crowd, like they're of part of it. Yeah, I've seen some of your sets. You really get into it. So it's like it's part of you know it's it's part of being a, a big DJ on stage is to is to work the crowd and not sort of hide behind the deck, right? Mm-hmm. I think that that is definitely something that's helped me stand out. Is I yeah I have a really good time, <laughs> but I think it's great because people don't want to see a DJ bored out of their brains on stage. So a- another piece of advice would be find your performance style and find something that you're comfortable with but also allows the crowd to engage with you because well I think about it like this if I went to a club I'd had a couple of champagnes and I wanted to dance what would I want to listen to and what would I want to see the DJ doing and I try and emulate that it's important yeah. isn't it it's important to, to project and to project that happiness and that joy um, and because it's infectious that's for sure so dance music uh, is, a, is a whole world um, I grew up with it and there's so many different styles of dance flavors talk us through some of your favorites and, and why they're your favorites so I actually don't listen to anything that I play in the clubs, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Which is just crazy. Um, right now I'm crushing on Peggy Goo. She is um, a Korean producer and DJ and she plays kind of like disco techno. Mm-hmm. Amazing. <laughs> it's amazing what like the genres can do to kind of fuse together. Um, so if I was to have a choice, I'd probably go to like a Carl Cox concert, I would say, really long sets with long songs and long mixes and um, really groovy bass lines, soaring vocals. Um, and then also, of course, like that minimal techno element I do really love. But when I'm playing, I play like super commercial, sing along. I'm getting everyone up. Um, you know, everyone knows the words. And so it's a really different vibe. But once again, that goes back to like what I would have wanted, you know, a couple of years ago in the club having some drinks with my girlfriends and I want to be able to like, you know, sing along and have a really good time. I definitely have like refined what I listen to Mm -hmm. because, um, you know, music is a big part of my life. And so when I do listen to it at home, I really like to choose specific things. Mm, Amazing. DJ Tiger Lily serving uh, upbeat, uplifting dance realness. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, I don't even listen to dance music that much. Like um, when I'm, like at home, like at the moment I've been listening to a band on repeat called 660 and they're a New Zealand band. If you haven't looked them up, you have to. They're like gospel meets mellow pop. It's like dreamy caramel harmonies and like infectious beats and really great hooks. Oh my God, they're just so good. And I played it for my sister the other day and she's like, what are you listening to? This is not you. And I'm like, no, this is me. This is what I like. (laughs) Just because I'm not DJing this doesn't mean I don't like it. (laughs) Well, that's the thing. Like music brings different moods, doesn't it? Like dance music is a very, as as with the name, it's a very energizing form of music. And, you know, sometimes I actually do put it on when I'm walking to work in the morning and it does get me, get me going. Uh, But then in the evening I'll listen to classic or, you know some contemporary music which which kind of lowers the mood and well, not lowers the mood but mellows you out a bit so that's the wonderful thing yeah. about music it can bring us to pick us up it can pull us down it can it can energize us it's a great gift to the world that's for sure so just talking a bit more about your career have you had any mentors or people in your career who've kind of supported you and helped helped hold you up because i think a lot of people when they get into an industry it's really challenging and tough there's so much competition there's always people trying to tear you down even in the vegan world even us in the media world here you know we get criticized every day there's always someone saying we're doing something wrong or 
but we have mentors. I have people around me all the time who I go to and who, who guide me and support me. Have you had much of that? Yeah, I have. It took a really long time to find and develop though. I would say that my team now that like the people that work with me and for me are my mentors, but it took years of trial and error and of relationship breakout breakdowns and fallouts and arguments and freaking legal cases you know to find that team but they really help I suppose move me in the right direction that I want to go I'm like really ideas driven and concept driven and really visual like a really visual person so I come up with all these ideas and like word vomit them out to them and they really help drive me in that right direction they can understand where I want to go but they're good at executing it and I'm just kind of at the front of the bus I suppose like putting all these crazy proposals forward there are quite a few like really um yeah awesome people I suppose in Australia that I've been able to work with and that have given me really good advice and really good guidance and I've also been lucky enough to like befriend heaps of the Australian DJs and they are a really nice little community they're all like my brothers now because they're all guys of course but they are always you know trying to lift me up and um, help me where they can and it's yeah it's we do have a really lovely community here in Australia, even though we do have tall poppy syndrome massively. I feel like the What's DJs. What's a tall poppy syndrome? Are, ah, okay, it's like um, when someone succeeds, everyone around them wants to cut them down. Oh no! That's like the number one quality of Australians. Wow, really? that's unfortunate. Like, so shitty. Like in America, everyone like wants to support each other. But here in Australia, if someone starts to do well, Australia hates them. But um, we're pretty lucky in the DJ industry that we've all kind of stuck together and we're all good friends. And that's, yeah, I'm proud of that. That's something really cool. Mm, that's good to hear that you have that support. I think it's really necessary, especially if you get involved in an industry like DJing in the music industry, which is incredibly challenging. You know, as you said, late nights, alcohol and partying, um, you know, you've survived it which is which is remarkable and wonderful oh also my family oh my god I don't know how I forgot them like my mom and my dad we have like a business meeting every quarter where I talk them through everything that's going on and my dad helps me with my finances and um yeah they like at the start when I first started DJing they just thought I wanted to party and now like they're my biggest fans <laughs> they like come to my shows and they love listening to the music I send them all my new like music that I'm writing like they're just so supportive I, I couldn't have asked for like a better situation so that's pretty cool that's great to hear yeah family are so important ashes to ashes we're falling down thought we were past this but now we're burning out so you, you mentioned um, music and, and your own kind of production. Like what are some of the things that you're working on and what are some of the stuff you've done in the past that are your favorites? Yeah, so I haven't released my own music now for like a year, which is crazy. I've just had issues with label time and time and time again, which sucks. And it's like the bane of every musician's existence. But I've got a heap of new music coming out next year. So as of like mid-January, we're finishing like all the artwork and like the designs and stuff for that single now, which is great and I've got like you know four finished tracks ready to rock like after that single which is really really exciting so that makes me very happy um just because I think in the past I've maybe not had the best guidance in regards to the, the world of record label mm. yeah legalities 
record labels and all that kind of stuff. And so I've fallen down a lot with that, but it's looking up from here, which is really exciting. And I've got a few collabs in the works, which is cool. I don't want to say anything yet just because I don't want to jinx it if they don't happen, but I'm very excited and I'm working with some really cool girls at the moment, some really cool women um, on some music, which is very exciting. So let's talk about you. Obviously, you're into the clean lifestyle, eating, eating well, you know, living, living your best life. Now, do you have much of the sober raving scene in Australia? Because in the UK, we have something called Morning Gloryville and Rise and Shine, where people party at like 6am before work for like four hours, dancing to all kinds of music without alcohol and certainly not without any drugs. Have you experienced much of the sort of sober, sober rave scene in, in uh, Australia? Well, not really. Australians love to drink and take drugs. So, <laughs> but you know what? It does exist because I've seen someone post about it on Instagram. I think it was at a lunchtime you went and had like a sober dance somewhere and it looked super cool, but it's really not popular here at all because you know, like Australians, like their meat, they also love their booze and their drugs. And yeah. I had an American friend once say to me, it's like you Aussies want to kill yourself every time you go out to party. <laughs> and I'm like, it is true. Like, we party like we want to die. Yeah, <laughs> it's next level. But I am super interested in that because, yeah, I maybe that's something that I should start over here or maybe I need Please to look do. into it and I that might be so find- great. Yeah, I, w- I could introduce you to the Morning Gloryville crew. They would definitely love to talk to you. I mean, it's been a phenomenon here and it's all over the country now. And, you know, as young people, and I certainly know speaking for myself, when I was in my 20s, I felt a huge pressure to drink um, alcohol and, to, you know, to take recreational drugs from friends because, you know, people felt that it was the only way to have fun. You know, I'm not, there's no shame or judgment on anyone who drinks alcohol or takes drugs I think for recreational purposes and as long as it's not you know an addiction I think a lot of people consume these substances you know recreationally and are absolutely fine but you know there are a lot of people who also struggle with them and they and it can be a gateway to a very difficult and painful life and I think a lot of young people don't realize that there are alternatives you can go to clubs and party without it so I Mm -hmm. think it would be great if you if you're interested in in sort of supporting the you know the, the sober dance movement yeah, I think that's I think that's such a great idea and I totally love that as well. And I don't get me wrong, I love to drink. I don't drink often, but when I do, I really enjoy it. I love having a wine at a nice dinner with friends, a champagne at my set with my parents and my friends if they've come to watch me. Like I definitely enjoy it, but I feel really lucky that I have a really good relationship with it and like my boyfriend and I we have these wine racks in our house and they're full. You know, we might go and do like a wine tour of a few different vineyards and we'll buy some wine, but we never drink it. And so we've just got all this wine and it never gets drunk. We're the same at Personal home. Problems, right? Yeah, we're the same at home in my house. My partner and I, um, he doesn't really drink and I don't really drink either. And when people come over for dinner parties or come to visit, they bring a bottle of wine. And so we have a cupboard in our, in our near our front door, which is literally overflowing with alcohol. And uh, I always open it in dismay and go, oh my gosh, we really need to get rid of some of this (laughs) I know it's crazy isn't it well we just like we drink but we don't drink at home you know we're not the type to crack open a bottle between us also young people these days are kind of switching 
away from alcohol and drugs a little bit, which is exciting. In Australia at the moment, there's a real trend to go to bars and to restaurants as opposed to go to clubs, which obviously still means alcohol is involved, but I think it means like the recreational drugs are like a lot less prominent because people are kind of going for this restaurant culture as opposed to like the rave culture. So yeah, it is really interesting, but it would be really cool to get involved with that kind of stuff. I, yeah, I wonder, I, there might be a really cool scene in Australia and I might just not know about it. Moving on a bit now, let's talk a bit about food and health. Being vegan, you know, food is obviously a big part of our lifestyle. Uh, we talk about it a lot. You know, it's all part of our advocacy because I personally believe that using food as a way to win over hearts and minds is, is for me, the best form of activism. Tell us about some of the, the things that you love to cook and uh, your kind of relationship with food and how it's changed. Awesome question. So I used to have a pretty bad relationship with food. Um, I went through like a period of time where I suppose I had a bit of an eating disorder. Um, this is probably when I was like 16, 17. And I worked really closely with a psychologist and a hypnotherapist to kind of go through that and work through that. But it took years. Like it was only probably, I say, when I went vegan and started like changing my workout regime in that I listened to my body as opposed to just do crazy amounts of cardio um, was that I was finally able to like let go of my poor relationship with food and like dive into this beautiful relationship with food. And it's crazy because a lot of people like come to veganism from like a restrictive standpoint. But for me, it was totally different because every food that I was eating made me feel good. I was able to eat whatever I wanted and it was really liberating. You know, I reacted really badly to dairy and um, meat obviously didn't sit well with me having a sensitive gut. And so, yeah, it, it kind of had the opposite effect as it does to a lot of people in that I really came into my own and have developed an awesome relationship with food now, which is great. And I eat a lot. I am healthy, but I'm not like, you know, I have a you know couple of bits of chocolate every night and I had a hamburger today it was great <laughs> but I do try and for you know the vast majority of my meals have really plain simple meals some of the things I love to cook um oh, I have a really great pasta that I love to cook with like mushroom and like basil pesto I have um a beautiful ramen which is one of mine and Scott's favorite winter meals it's this really beautiful creamy sesame broth with a whole heap of like tofu and uh, stir fried vegetables thrown in there, which is really, really nice. And the craziest thing is that I've learned about cooking plant based is that you can literally cook anything that you want that you had before and like make it plant-based or vegan, which is really, really cool. The world is really your oyster with cooking. It just takes a little bit of experimenting <laughs> to get things um, right. And it's pretty amazing the products that they have out um, on the market now. But I think also 
just a final comment on that. Um, a lot of the time I'll have like a really plain meal. So I'll do like some roast potato, um, some broccoli, asparagus, spinach, lettuce, just a whole heap of veggies, maybe some falafel or some hummus, uh, Love hummus. maybe some tofu. Yeah, me too. Life is hummus. Hummus is life. Life is hummus. <laughs> <laughs> and so I just have like a big plate just like stacked full of food it's not necessarily a meal and um funnily enough i think that's how a lot of my vegan friends like to eat and it just means that we're able to eat like plain and simple and really healthy and get you know a vast color of rainbow onto our plate which is i think an important thing being vegan you do have to be quite aware of what you're putting into your body and you do have to make a conscious effort to you know get all the right nutrients in half the time i have really weird plain combinations of like fruits and vegetables and beans and legumes and things and then you know the other half of the time i'll try to get creative sounds so delicious you um mentioned also you had some health problems uh did you say some potential crohn's how have you has that improved have you still have you still got the um condition or what how's your health these days my health is so good. I am proudly fully off all my medication, which is crazy because the medication that I was originally on for that was meant to be like a lifelong kind of thing. Oh, a lot of people are on it for life. And I pretty much have no symptoms now. On the odd like night where I go out and I have a really rich, crazy dinner and alcohol, I'll have like a sensitive stomach the next day. But let's be real, 99% of the population also would too. Yeah, I, I like really um, give thanks to veganism and a healthy plant-based lifestyle. And of course, all the other things that I was speaking about before, you know, like taking time to chill, going and having my saunas, finding a workout regime that works for me, and of course, sleep to healing my gut. I'm very lucky though in that I work in a job where I'm able to dictate and choose my time schedule. So back then I would be working like four nights a week and now I work like maximum two nights a week just because I know how important sleep is for the rehabilitation of every single part of our body, including and especially our gut. So I've been able to yeah, create some really great boundaries for myself in regards to health and healing. I feel amazing. I was said to my partner tonight, I said, I feel so healthy. Actually, this is one thing that we eat a lot, uh, poke bowls. Do you have them in the UK? They just started appearing. <laughs> I think we call them Buddha. We call them Buddha bowls. I think, I think it's the same thing. Buddha bowl, poke bowl. Poke bowls are actually from Hawaii right. and Buddha bowls are from like Asia. Mm. Anyway, so like the poke bowl is traditionally with like sashimi, so raw fish and then lots of veggies and rice. Um, but I have mine with tofu and we have like a little place up the road that just does them and they put in, there'd be 20 different vegetables in there and then like heaps of tofu and brown rice and it's a cheap, really, really healthy filling meal. And so we probably have that twice a week at the moment. <laughs> We're obsessed. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I think actually there is now that you mention it, there is a new restaurant that just opened up here called Ahai Pokey, which now I get what it means because they do these bowls and Klaus who runs Plot Based News with me, he's obsessed with them. He literally has it like five times a week. Um and he he comes into the office with this bowl which is just every kind of thing in it. And he also also loves to dr he loves to drown it with nutritional yeast as well. It's his favorite thing. I don't know if you have nooch over there. Do you eat a lot of nooch? 
We do. We eat a lot of newt. I often put like nutritional yeast and maybe sesame seeds and some sort of like hot sauce on it. <laughs> mm, delicious. Amazing. <laughs> so um, just final, finally moving on to final questions. Um, animals. So you're, you're a dog mum. Tell us about your, your doggos. <laughs> are they vegan and are they not? Controversial question. So this is um, not great. My dog is not vegan purely because... I feel like the research that I've read hasn't been, I suppose, convincing enough for me yet. And I'm not sure if they've done enough research to make sure that the dogs are going to be okay, like being plant-based. And I've seen that a lot of dogs can be really healthy plant-based, especially when they come from having really bad diets. But Lenny's diet is, so his dry food is animal product. And I found two companies that are Australian, organic, like all the pesticides free, grain free, all that crap. So it's freaking expensive, but I spent like a lot of time looking into it before we you know, got a dog and I wanted to make the right decision for him. And it's tough, like buying that food for him, but he's really healthy and thriving on it. So for the time being, it is what it is. Um, But then all his snacks are vegan. So we have like vegan pig's ears, which are made from like wheat and soy and other random things. And we have these like little vegan dog biscuits that are like kind of bread-like and he like loves fruit and vegetables, any fruit and vegetables, like he just wants all the time. So he has like a nice range of everything and I kind of feel a little bit better about it having, you know, his snacks be vegan Mm -hmm. and main meals be not vegan. So, yeah, it's something that I'm not sure – what's going to happen in the future. And I'm excited for um, there to be more research and more products come out. I've looked into getting, we have um, a product here that is vegan dog food, but I have some friends' dogs who have it and the dogs won't bloody eat it, which is annoying. <laughs> so I was thinking Well, there is, a, there is a trick to it though. And that's the thing. I've had, I get asked this question a lot. Can my dog or cat eat uh, vegan dog food or cat food? Um, and actually a lot of people make the mistake of just putting the food in front of them and expecting to eat it. But just like any other person, because our animals are people like us, aren't they? They just they just don't speak our language. You know, if you were if you were just eating poke bowls for like six years and then someone just put something totally different in front of you that you didn't really know or weren't familiar with, you would probably turn your nose up at it. And you know, dogs and cats are no different. The the key and the secret is is to blend the two foods together. So half um, animal product food and half vegan dog or cat food and then slowly and gradually uh, phase out the animal products. My cat Nala has been I've had her she's been in my life for eight nine years um and she's always eaten animal products and up until recently i spoke to a vet and also spoke to a few uh, nutritionists who said that vegan dog and cat food if it's formulated correctly with the right amino acids is absolutely fine now i was always been hesitant because she you know she's my pride and joy i absolutely love her she's basically my furry child and if anything happened to her i would be devastated now I've st- I did this. I've slowly started to wean her off the animal products and give her this vegan cat food, which has all the um, t- taurine and uh, I don't know how to pronounce it, arach- arachnoic acid. I- 
don't know how to pronounce it, but you know, and and actually she loves it. She's been eating it every day, and in fact, her pussy eyes that she used to get every single day have cleared up. She's her coat is still really? nice and shiny. She's still got loads of energy. She's playful, and she's been on her vegan cat food for about three months now. Uh, she isn't lethargic. She isn't de dead or frothing at the mouth. Um, and a lot of people said, you know, you'll tell, you'll be able to know. Animals are very sensitive. And if they, if the food isn't nourishing them, they will know, you'll know straight away that there's something wrong. That being said, there's still always that annoying thought in the back of my head. Am I killing my baby? <laughs> yeah, a hundred percent. It's scary, isn't it? It's really, oh, it's, a, it's a really tough one. And like, I knew that it was going to be like this when like Scott and I got our own dog and it wasn't a family dog. Yeah. We have the vegan markets in Sydney this weekend and they do always have a vegan dog stand. So I might go and get a packet and start to mix it in with his food and see if he yeah, likes it. Because it could be flexitarian as well. I think that that's the thing. I, you know, I, I may even just sort of mix in some animal products every so often just to be on the safe side. But I think, you know, vegan dog food and cat food is properly formulated and and it does nourish their bodies because ultimately at the end of the day, you know, an organism of any sort, whether it's a cat, a dog, a giraffe, a hippo, a human, we require micro and macronutrients, you know, uh, fats, mm -hmm. proteins, you know, amino acids, uh, you know, certain vitamins. And if we can extract those vitamins through technology and put them into a food source and make it plant-based, then there's absolutely no reason why a carnivore, because, you know, people throw around this word, this word obligate carnivores. And I think a lot of people don't actually yeah. know what that actually means. It's just the way an animal processes the fats and the proteins in, a, in, in its body. And I think if we can provide those nutrients to an animal extracted from plants, because, you know, think about where do carnivores, carnivores eat other animals, uh, but where do those animals get their nutrients from? Plants. Just like humans, these carnivores are filtering nutrients through these other animals. So also there's the clean meat discussion as well. You know, the cultured meat, you know, the meat, the meat grown in a lab, that could bring huge amounts of positive choices to to companion animals so that's quite exciting it's awesome isn't it i think that um we'll look back in 20 years and we'll probably all be feeding our animals vegan and or like you know lab grown meat which is awesome but also the point that you said before about like him being like flexitarian it's like about the ratios right so if you're consuming less animal product that's amazing and i think that that's something that i really encourage not just for your pets but for everyone it doesn't matter if you're not fully vegan if you can be vegan five days a week you're going to save a shitload of animals you're going to feel amazing and you're going to change like your life and the life of so many people and animals for the better you know so I'm a big promoter in being gentle with yourself and I know like obviously I'm hardcore in that like I'm like obviously full-time <laughs> full-time for life but I think other people aren't yeah, <laughs> level 15 on a scale of 10. <laughs> but like, a lot of people aren't like us. And so then that's okay. Like five out of seven days is a massive win. Yeah. And we must applaud all the small changes people make because, you know, small changes add up to big differences. I started off just cutting out dairy and then it was meat and then eggs. It was a slow process for me. Not everyone goes vegan overnight and it, and it, we have to be patient. You know, the world isn't going to go vegan overnight and it, and it needs to be a process in which people do it in a way that they feel comfortable so that they stick with it because most people 
try vegan and they don't stick with it because of mostly because of social pressure, but because, you know, they, they feel overwhelmed by, by this huge, what is it, what feels like a huge social and cultural change. But um, moving on from veganism and food, uh, you know, and Australia is currently being gripped by the climate crisis, like the rest of the planet. Um, you guys are experiencing huge forest fires, which are decimating the environment, uh, forests and killing koala bears and probably all number of other animals. What do you say, what would you say to people and politicians who say that the climate crisis is a hoax? Because I know your prime minister, he's quite right leaning, isn't he? And quite conservative. And I think he believes that it's all a hoax. Well, our prime minister is a bit of a baboon. Actually, he's probably worse than a baboon because baboons are probably quite nice. (laughs) (laughs) I would just honestly say wake up after I slapped them because it is just so unfair for the future generations and for the animals and for the environment to be turning a blind eye to what is going on. The Aboriginal people of Australia have such a strong connection to the land and the land was the thing that they respected most. And like we white folk came in and absolutely like raped and pillaged the land. It's really disappointing and I'm really disappointed in all our politicians because we've turned a blind eye to, you know, the custodians of the land and, you know, we just say prayers and thoughts and at the, uh, you know, at opening of each speech, we pay our respects to the custodians of the land, the Aboriginal people. But it's just bullshit because what is it? Actions speak much louder than words and our actions are we are continuing to rape and pillage the land and our words are, you know, saying otherwise. And it's it's very frustrating as a young person. I'm very embarrassed and disappointed in our politicians because I don't feel like they represent our generation and the younger generations and what we want. And unfortunately, I think it's going to be a process of us waiting years until they become out of power and it's, you know, people mm, say, 40 years and under who are going to be in power and hopefully then be making positive changes. And there's something about, I hate to stereotype, but it's kind of true. It's like older white Australians that are just really conservative and are really self-focused and inward looking. And it's almost as if they can't see bigger picture things. And I'm not sure whether that's because of, you know, them growing up through the depression and the wars or maybe feeling like they were disconnected from the world living in Australia. I'm not sure what it is, but um, yeah, our prime minister is a bit of a joke and he doesn't have a good rep here, especially among the young people. Um, we're pretty embarrassed by him. Yeah. What is being done in Australia? Do you have any groups that are kind of trying to bring change from an environment perspective? I know obviously you've got all the obvious ones like Greenpeace, but do you have any mm. um, environmental groups that, that are like we've in the UK, we've, have you heard of Extinction Rebellion? Yeah. So we have them here as well. Right. Yeah. They're awesome. Yeah, look, we do a lot of, um, with the Greta Thunberg amazingness, a lot of young kids are getting on board and, um, you know, striking, all that kind of stuff. We do have a really awesome political party called the Animal Justice Party, and they are led by some really awesome, well-spoken people who really care about animals and the environment. At the moment, with these awful bushfires, we have seen so many people come out of the woodwork and donate money and time and resources. Prime example is there's a koala hospital up on the coast and um, I donated a little bit like maybe what 
a week ago. And right then the donations were at $23,000. I checked two days ago, they were almost at $200,000. So people are like really digging deep to give back to like the communities and the environment and of course like the native animals. But unfortunately, these things have like massive profound impacts on our ecosystem and the community as well. I actually it was the craziest thing. I was flying back from a show last weekend and it was flying over all the bushfires. So it was just clouds of smoke everywhere. And I was sitting next to a man and we got talking and he was actually a bushfire detection prevention inventor. So his job was to invent um things that prevented major mass bushfires, right? And he'd been passionate about this for years. Um, he was actually South African and he'd traveled the world trying to get governments to put these um these like cameras and towers and bits and pieces into place because obviously the environment is so important. And the only people that would put them into place were the logging and the timber industries because they had an economic interest in keeping their trees from burning down. And he was so disenfranchised and so disappointed with governments and, you know, bodies that were in power that he actually decided to change his career and he's studying to be a pilot at the moment because he was so disappointed that all this technology that we have isn't being picked up. And he said that it's because it's clearly a financial thing in that, um, you know, when the fires and when the fires burn, the governments will give the different, I suppose, corporations and groups and whatever, more money and more funds and more resources, which then makes their life easier. So actually from like the top down, like people probably want there to be fires because if they have an economic interest in that department, then they're going to be making more money. And it was just incredible for me. It was such like a serendipitous moment. Is that the right word? Where I was looking down at like the destruction of like thousands of hectares of like natural Australian bush and to have this guy telling me that people actually probably wanted it to burn. It it was just one of those moments where you it just hits home, mm. like how the enormity mess, of messed it. up it all. Mm. It's a huge monster. Um, I mean, there's so many things that we can all do, though. Obviously, you're um, eating a plant-based diet. You're advocating, you know, to an audience and using your platform to educate people. Obviously, as you mentioned, you, you fly as well. I also occasionally fly, um, and a lot of people, when I and I have flown, have kind of called me out or criticized me saying, why didn't you take the train or why didn't you get a boat? <laughs> Do you, you mentioned obviously flying and obviously Australia is such a huge place and obviously you fly into, you have to fly internationally to get to gigs and things. Is there anything that you can do to kind of mitigate your, your um, carbon from flying and, and what kinds of things do you think people can get involved in other than obviously the obvious things like planting trees? I always pay the carbon offsets and it like blows my mind. I'm like, hmm, this is $30. I don't think that this is going to carbon offset my flight, but I pay it anyway. But that's the only thing that I've really done in the past. And of course, flight economy most of the time, um, because that has a much less environmental impact than flying business class. Oh, that's Um, interesting. Why is that? I think it's to do with like the food and all the stuff that goes into the business class prep. It's a lot more um, weight and time and resources and stuff like that. Yeah. And also from a space perspective. Um, So, 
There's a really awesome um, group in Australia that I've just teamed up with. They're called Uncut. What they do is they turn businesses carbon positive. So we're not talking carbon neutral. We're turning carbon businesses carbon positive. So right now we're working out how many flights I take a year, my car, you know, the lights in my office, all that kind of stuff, figuring out how much carbon my business puts out. And then what I'm going to do is buy back rainforest every year to offset it and then some, which is such a cool thing because it means that obviously I feel so guilty about flying. It freaking sucks. But I also have to like work to like, (laughs) not like, you know, to make money and to live, to to be able to talk about yeah, right. And so, um, yeah, I'm really excited about doing this work with them just because um, it's finally a way that I feel like I can tangibly measure um, my carbon footprint from a work perspective and then hopefully offset it. And they have like a really successful rainforest buyback scheme um, with um, groups all around the world, which is so exciting. So, yeah, stay tuned for more of that great sounds amazing before we let we go we always like to ask our guests this final question if you were stuck on a desert island and it was just you and a pig <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you, i love these <laughs> you're obviously not going to eat the pig because you're a vegan <laughs> that goes without saying yeah, but if you're stuck on this island and all you had was one vegan dish one book and one music album what would you take with you oh my gosh Oh my god! I wish you would have sent this to me before, so I could have like come up. Really, sorry. I love I love hearing people squirm about their favorites. It's always it's always hard. Okay, so my favorite cuisine is Lebanese cuisine. So I think I'd have like a vegetarian mixed plate, which is like falafel, tabbouleh, bread, um, baba ganoush, hummus, all those kind of amazing things. So that would be like my mixed plate meal, and then my book would probably be something by Eckhart Tolle. I know he's like a bit corny, but he was like the first person that got me into being conscious and waking up. And I feel like you might need a little bit of a reminder that, you know, of all those great things if you're stuck on a desert island. Existential crisis and all that. <laughs> 100%. And then album-wise, oh, no, this is too hard. I think it would have to be something by Dead Mouse, and I go back to my dance music roots in this. He's like the guy that got me into DJing and got me into dance music and producing, and so it would have to be maybe his – I don't know if he has like a greatest hits album, but, yeah, something like that, Dead Mouse, Great, greatest hits. Good choices, good choices. <laughs> Before we let you go, uh, Ken, how can everyone find out where you are, your website, and uh, follow you, your future endeavours? Um, so my website is djtigerlily.com and I have um, blogs and journals and a guest blog on there and we like upload multiple like articles every week which is super awesome. Um, I have two Instagram accounts so obviously my work one is DJ Tiger Lily, but then my veganism, animal rights, health one is called Our Soul Purpose. And I suppose those would be like the two main places that I live. I also have, you know, Spotify and Facebook, SoundCloud, YouTube, Twitter, all those things, but you can find them all from my website or my Instagram. Fantastic. That's great. Well, Dara, thank you so much for joining us on the PBN podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. You have asked the most beautiful, insightful, interesting questions and I'm not going to be able to sleep now. I'm going to be buzzing. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. 
Thanks for joining us so this week on the podcast, everyone. I've been your host, Robbie Lockie. We'll be back next week with more health, fashion, veganism, technology, animals, and everything in between. <laughs>